Yeah, so right now, if you want to access a doctor, it, it's very uh, simple. So you just send an SMS with the word CARE, that is C-A-R-E, to 8080, and just follow the prompts. What it's going to do is prompt you to make a, a mobile money payment for the consultation, which is just 10,000 shillings. Hello, your phone be Conversations by Ordinary People podcast. I am your host, Kenneth. In today's interview, we talk with Dr. Davis Mosinguzi, who is currently the Managing Director of the Medical Concierge Group. TMCG is at the forefront of providing medical health in Uganda using innovative approaches like telehealth. Telehealth is where you can access healthcare using your phone. TMCG also provides a self-service website and e-commerce pharmacy at rockethealth.shop. Yeah, even if most of our conversations are intentionally devoid of structure, this specific interview is organized into three specific sections, and I thought I should mention in case you're interested in one topic over the other. Uh, when we kick off, the conversation focuses mainly on Rocket Health's response to those in need of healthcare during the COVID-19 crisis. Here we talk about how they've managed to work within the provided guidelines and still be able to reach their clients. The second section that starts around the 20th minute, Debbie and Davis dive deeper into the medical specifics of the operations at TMCG. And here they talk more about how doctors are recruited, how services are provided, which kind of services are provided, and sort of discuss the limits of providing healthcare online. In the third section, Davis and I talk more about the business and the big questions around doing startups within Uganda and Africa, and this going to security, into big data, and so on and so forth. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. So welcome, welcome to the Big Conversations by Ordinary People podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth. With me is the co-host, uh, Debbie, and our guest, Davis. So Davis is the founder and uh, managing director, uh, please correct me if I get your title wrong, of the Medical Concierge Group. And yes, uh, today we are going to have a conversation with Davis, and uh, mostly the conversation was zero around um, the Medical Concierge Group's response during this coronavirus crisis, but also we'll talk a little bit more about uh, sort of technology and uh, telehealth and sort of the future of technology. Uh, if uh, Davis, you don't mind. So yeah, uh, to kick off, Davis, uh, you can please go ahead and introduce yourself the best way you'd want to be introduced. And then I can go ahead and ask you a few questions as we go forward. Great. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and to be able to share what our personal experiences have been during this time at the Medical Concierge Group and through our service work at Health. So I'm Davis Musinguzi. I'm trained as a medical doctor and also in IT and healthcare management. Uh, I'm the founder and managing director of a telemedicine company uh, that has been in Uganda since 2012. Uh, it's been quite an experience providing telemedicine services to Ugandans. And I think more than ever, this COVID uh, epidemic has really highlighted the importance of making sure that everyone has an option to uh, virtual care or home-based uh, health care. Uh, yeah, uh, well, thank you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think... Uh Going directly into it, what uh, I am curious about and what uh, most people are curious about right now is the challenges. I know uh, this crisis has also come as sort of a business opportunity for you because this is sort of the problem that you've set out to solve even before the crisis. But would be curious to know what are some of those uh, challenges that are very specific to to this situation. And I, I want to like uh, maybe make sure the conversations are a little bit more focused to point out a few things that I know would be challenging. Uh, most of the work you do, uh, say, around deliveries has been uh, based on using, uh, say, bikes as a means of delivery, as a cost-effective means of delivery. But following the guidelines that have been set out, there are some limitations that have been put on how to use bikes and when to use them. So what, including that, what are the other kind of challenges that you've faced that are due to these coronaviruses that are sort of restricting the way you would want to deliver the service? Great. Um, Ken, oh, um, I would just like to uh, just interrupt you there um, to just to our listeners who actually don't know what telemedicine is yeah. and exactly what happens. I would like for us to just begin with defining how it really works. Um, just for those to keep up a bit, to define the whole concept before we can actually go into the challenges and everything around it. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Debbie. I was actually planning to start there to kind of, uh, you know, set up 
uh, the stage for people that uh, are hearing about telemedicine for the first time. So the whole basis of telemedicine is that you should be able to interact with a medical professional or medical service virtually without being in the same room with each other. And of course, for the longest time, that is not how medicine has been practiced. Traditionally, what happens in a medical practice is that a patient with symptoms uh, comes to a facility uh, that houses the medical staff that would address their health challenge. And they would either have to get there on foot, by bicycle, by car, uh, and then, you know, first thing you're greeted with is uh, either a reception or a waiting room uh, where you find yourself mixed up with also other patients that are in a queue waiting to be seen by the medical doctor. And one by one, uh, each patient goes into the doctor's room, consultation room, and, you know, gets uh, some kind of triage, make, making sure that you take their uh, basic body vitals, but then also take their history, try to understand what their condition actually is do some physical examination. And then uh, at that point in time, if you have a diagnosis, great. If you don't have a diagnosis, do some confirmatory tests or imaging to kind of confirm what the possibilities may be. Now, when you try to replicate that experience to a virtual world, you can automatically find that they it requires a, a different kind of shift from uh, what you'd call bedside care to more website care. So what we do at the uh, at rocket health which is the service of the medical concierge group is uh, we have a medical call center service uh, that uh, is staffed by doctors uh, 24 hours seven days a week you can use any of the following communication channels you can chat with the doctor through any of the chat platforms you can be able to call in and interact with the doctor or you can have a video consultation uh, what that means is that at a distance without being in the same physical location you can have a meaningful engagement uh, with a medical doctor. If at all we identify that you need some uh, prescriptions, uh, some prescription medicines, if we need to write your prescription, what would happen is that we deliver that out of our pharmacy. Our pharmacy would have that prepackaged for you and delivered to your home, school, work, or wherever it is that you are. If we don't have a final diagnosis, what we're going to do is we're gonna pick up a sample from you, a lab sample from you. It could be blood, urine, stool, whatever that is. We bring that into our lab, we run the tests, and then the doctors call you back, explain and discuss your, your results and your next course of action. In the scenario that we identify that this is something that we cannot resolve remotely, then we ask that we see you physically or we refer you to a specialist that would be of more value to you rather than uh, continuing this virtual co uh, consultation. So it's really about understanding the value uh, telemedicine can have through remote access to medical professionals and services, but then also understanding its limits and where uh, you need to discern that this is a case that must be handled uh, in person. So in terms of uh, the, some of the challenges that we have uh, seen, so previously, of course, like you mentioned, uh, the, the distribution aspect of our services uh, was heavily reliant on motorbikes. So what that would mean is if somebody makes uh, a has a consultation with one of our doctors and our doctor writes them a prescription and we are doing a pharmacy delivery, we would normally have a pharmacy technician uh, get onto a motorbike and deliver that uh, to the client. Now, normally you would have a rider and also the technician delivering your medicines. All right, so in, in this new scenario, now that you cannot have two people riding a motorbike or you have motorbikes that can't uh, be a form of transport after 2 p.m., it has definitely put a, a logistical constraint. So now we have to rely on uh, cars that are authorized with these uh, MOH-provided stickers to be able to complete some of these deliveries and also lab sample pickups. So there's been one element of change in that regard. Uh, Yes, the other thing also to consider is uh, with insurance clients, for instance, uh, they have to go through that biometric verification process. And uh, this is not something that, you know, uh, your border guide delivering medicines is going to be able to do. Uh, so uh, you find that for those particular cases, we have to have one of our staff and the driver be able to come to somebody's location and process uh, their insurance card so that they can be able to get the service that they need. Uh, in terms of also other challenges, of course, because everybody's at home, uh, this is possibly the only form of care that people are able to get 
so it has led to uh, a spike, a surge in traction on our end. So we've had to add more doctors to our call center service to be able to meet the growing demand. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, th uh, yeah, th thanks a lot. Uh, so actually this uh, covers uh, sort of scopes into some of their questions and to ask. And yeah, one of my biggest curiosity was that expected surge. So I know that uh, before this became, before the, the pandemic sort of had a few, a few lights, it showed a few lights before it became a full-on crisis, before most of the governments decided that they wanted to lock down their countries and before it became the, the effects of it, uh, sort of like uh, transportation and all that. Did you anticipate that this is something that you may probably want to cater for or have you decided, have you been agile? Have you decided to change sort of day to day as the surge has been going up, you know, as the demand keeps going up, have you decided to change as you yeah, work so or is this something you plan? Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think, uh, you know, when you hear about an epidemic in a far off country, it's always very hard to imagine that it cannot, it's very hard to imagine that it could be at your doorstep in a few weeks. Uh, people are not kind of tuned to think about uh, epidemics in that sense when they happen, you know, far off. Uh, but then because of the way this one has particularly been transmitted from person to person, it's, well, you could literally say it's viral. <laughs> it's gone viral. And uh, uh, so the rate of transmission is, is very high and it's been at our doorstep quite quickly. And of course, the government has been very helpful in the sense that they have implemented some strict, drastic measures. And we have had to adapt as soon as new regulations come out because each of these regulations are getting strictly enforced. So as a, as a startup, as a business, we've had to be extremely agile to make sure that we're not breaking any rules, we're keeping our teams safe, uh, that everybody that should work from home is at home. So it's pretty much being managed day by day as and when new regulations get set. And you know, what I find particularly interesting is that it may not be as convenient for any of the larger incumbent hospitals and clinics to be as agile as we are, because for us, it's inherently built in our, into our system to be agile, unlike a lot of other uh, healthcare providers or medical uh, professionals. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think we totally agree on that. Uh, sort of the structure of TMCG is really more prepared to address uh, something like this. Uh, and let's, let's yes. switch a little bit onto the technology bit. So I know uh, technology and accessibility, you know, uh, I know that some of the services you provide like uh, video, or like medicine through video or medicine through a smartphone are not services that uh, many, the majority of Ugandans would access. And this is not because they can't access a smartphone or they can't access a sort of uh, a point of video, but it's just because uh, most of them expect this to be a higher learning curve. You know, they have sort of a fantasy in their head. That's my assumption as well, that they have a fantasy that uh, technology is too geeky for them to use. Yeah. Uh, have you put up any measures to address, things, to address this accessibility issue that is not really about the unavailability of the resource, but rather the, the phobia within people that the resource is not for them? Yeah. So, you know, you, amongst the population, you have a... A broad spectrum of how savvy different people are with technology. Even though some people may own technology, they may not be particularly comfortable using it. So, what we have always tried to do within our own service model is to make sure that it is all inclusive. We try to figure out what is somebody comfortable doing on their phone. If you're comfortable with making a phone call, we want to make sure that you can reach us through just making a phone call. And for that reason, we set up toll-free lines so that if you're comfortable with a phone call, you're able to use that to be able to reach us. You have people that are more comfortable using chat. They don't like talking on the phone. They would rather be able to use any of these chat applications to stay engaged with whoever it is that they're speaking to. And we also made that possible to have a chat interaction with our medical professionals. The other thing, of course, is some people are either more affluent or more savvy and they're more comfortable using video consultations. So you also make, have to make sure that you cater to that category of the population that does that. 
a very interesting thing that we launched last year in August was a self-service e-shop. Uh, we noticed that people were getting more comfortable with e-commerce. So we wanted that category of users to be comfortable with just going to rocket.shop and being able to select whatever pharmacy items or lab services that they want and uh, complete their transaction online using mobile money or their bank card or, or cash and delivery, whichever it is that they please. And then we would be uh, in a position to deliver that service to them. So I think, you know, in, in the service model, you have to find ways of being all inclusive, regardless of people's level of uh, digital literacy. And that, that's the only way that you can make uh, healthcare truly accessible uh, and affordable uh, for everybody that you're trying to reach. Yeah, uh, you maybe want to take a minute also to read out some of those points of access. For example, the phone numbers that people can read the service yeah, yeah. through with the WhatsApp number. Yes, please go ahead. Yeah, so right now, if you want to access a doctor, it's very as simple as sending an SMS. So you just send an SMS with the word CARE, that is C-A-R-E, to 8080, and just follow the prompts. What it's going to do is prompt you to make a, a mobile money payment for the consultation, which is just 10,000 shillings. And the moment that transaction is successful, the doctors get a notification on their dashboard, and they call you back to handle that consultation. Uh, the other way to do it, if you have insurance, uh, we're currently taking insurance from UAP Old Mutual, from ICEA, and from Prudential. So they have dedicated toll-free lines that reach us directly, and you can be able to get those from your insurer. Otherwise, if you just want to kind of reach out directly to the pharmacy and the lab or, or the clinic, and you already know exactly what you want, you can just call our journal line, which is 0800-100-700. Uh, it's toll-free. You go through an IVR menu where you just select what your preference is and you'll be connected directly to either a lab, a pharmacy, or a clinic to address whatever it is that you need. Uh, for those that prefer to do uh, online transactions, uh, if you go to rockethealth.shop, uh, it's a very easy way for you to get all the services that I've just described. You can request and pay for a doctor callback. You can get an annual subscription package that gives you unlimited consultations all year round. You can book a clinic appointment, set the date, set the time, what you're coming in for, prepay for it. Uh, you can be able to buy vaccinations. Uh, on there, we have about 17 different vaccines that somebody can buy, and we'll deliver that shot to you wherever it is you, where you are within or around Kampala. So that's how anybody and everybody can access our service right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, uh, when it comes to lessons learned, and I know this is a very trying situation and maybe you've not had like a time to aggregate everything that you've learned so far. But are there any uh, sort of behaviors that you see right now that may be permanent even post the crisis? Uh, say, do you see the customers using telemedicine as sort of their de facto way to access healthcare uh, going forward? Or do you think the, the, the behavior may change back? when things yeah. normalize. Yeah. I, I think, you know, what is very interesting with uh, telemedicine versus conventional care is that people always felt more reassured entering a physical facility, seeing somebody, uh, and that's how they had built confidence and trust with the conventional system over time. Uh, telemedicine is, a very, is in a very unique position right now because it's the only option available if your mobility is restricted. And therefore, you have to give telemedicine the benefit of the doubt. What I have found out to be quite interesting is that the moment a single client uses telemedicine and experiences the magic of it, that they could talk to somebody remotely and get to the center of their problem, that they could write them a prescription and gets delivered to them at home, or that their, their child is sick and somebody came to pick a sample and now the medicines have arrived thereafter because we have a diagnosis or the fact that you couldn't move your children for their scheduled vaccination, but somebody still came to your home and gave them that shot. I think the moment they have that magic experience, there is no coming back from that. Uh, there is no going back to waiting rooms and queues and you know, driving to health facilities and going through the traffic. So the key thing for us is to just get as many people as possible to have that fast experience and get them over that mental leap that builds trust and confidence that the quality of care that they're getting is paramount or even better, uh, that the 
safety precautions are definitely taken, that it's of very high quality, can be trusted. It is extremely convenient. Uh, it does not pinch your pocket. So I think over time, people are going to uh, build more trust as a result of this experience. And I think we'll find a whole new following of telemedicine advocates uh, even after this crisis. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, so I want to switch over to a few big questions. And I know unless Debbie maybe has uh, something she want, she may want to ask or point out, I, I wanted to move over to sort of the business part of it, uh, things like uh, security and privacy, because uh, I know, you know, that it's a different scenario for me talking to a doctor about, say, a case of gonorrhea. I, I would be more comfortable doing that rather than, you know, leaving a permanent message in my WhatsApp uh, about me texting a doctor somewhere in the crowd about, you know, some of those embarrassing, I would say embarrassing in what's uh, diseases. Okay, um, yeah. before you get to that, let me just um, ask him these few questions, which um, I've been so curious about. So um, how many departments are on the, on the platform? Okay, so when you say departments, do you mean specialties? Yeah. Okay, all right. So right now we just use medical officers, so primary care doctors, or what people would call general practitioners. And then yeah. we have a network of specialists that we can refer you to if at all we think it's something that needs specialist care. We hope that we will move to a more agile model where uh, a specialist can be accessed uh, remotely for the patient. Uh, but then, you know, there is still that mental leap getting a lot of specialists to be accustomed to using telemedicine as a means of uh, interacting with their patients. Uh, but again, fortunately, through this crisis, uh, we have had several specialists get in touch with us and say, how can we get added onto your service model so that we can facilitate our engagements with our patients and they don't have to keep calling our private phone numbers or we can create some kind of structure around it where I can still take a patient's medical notes, uh, provide that consultation, not physically be within a call center or a hospital, but do that at home. So I think for us, uh, we have started exploring those steps where you will be able to get any kind of specialty through our telemedicine service. And uh, I think that's going to be the next level of uh, service growth for us. Okay, um, when, um, when you're having, um, you said um, one of the ways that uh, the patients can engage you is through chats and uh, call-ins and yeah. But yes. when it comes to the part of physical examination, what if actually yeah. the doctor would need to maybe palpate or do some auscultation? How is that possible? And how is the doctor going to be satisfied with the diagnosis if he hasn't actually done this? Great. So we have a, a thorough quality assurance mechanism in-house that we have built over time that trains our doctors to be able to discern what cases they can be able to complete remotely over the phone or which kind of cases would be uh, best completed fast with just doing labs uh, or uh, a fast line treatment. But then, you know, inevitably, there are always those that require a physical examination uh, where they need to listen to your chest sounds, uh, your heart sounds and things like that. So for those particular cases, we ask that people come in physically. So we have a telemedicine clinic. Uh, so it's just like any other clinic. The only difference is that uh, at this clinic, we have medical devices that are connected uh, through software to engage our doctors remotely. So you show up at the clinic, you'll find a nurse, a clinical officer there as your frontline uh, front staff. They will be able to take all these different vitals, your BP, your temperature, your oxygen concentration. Uh, they can listen to your chest and heart sounds. But while all that is being done in real time, all of that information is getting uploaded into software that is also accessible to the doctors at the call center. So they can immediately see your BP, they can listen to your heart and chest sounds. Uh, for instance, if, you're, if you have at uh, the clinic, a child that has a possible ear infection, we can get real-time video of the inside of this child's ear transmitted to the doctors who are participating in the consultation room remotely uh, via video. So they too can also see the patient, they can talk to the patient, they can chat with the patient. And because our clinic also operates mainly on an appointments basis, uh, we always know which kind of patient is coming in at what time, what they're coming in for, what interventional procedures that they're coming in for. So we will have some appointments that will be seen physically by a doctor if it has been pre-planned and prepared that a doctor should see this particular patient 
rather than doing a remote telemedicine consultation. Um, okay, so does this also apply to dermatological conditions, the skin conditions, they always have to end up coming in? So with skin conditions, there, there are a lot of skin conditions that you can diagnose if you have good quality uh, images of that particular condition. So we have had scenarios where uh, patients will send us photos uh, of the condition. We will take history. Uh, we will be able to assess and uh, have a diagnosis for some of them. For some others, probably not. Uh, you will have those referred to a dermatologist for further review. Fortunately, there's also a lot of progress that has been made in artificial intelligence. So we had uh, a pilot study that we did with an AI company called FastDerm that is creating uh, image recognition software uh, using artificial intelligence for a lot of skin conditions. And you take a close-up photo of it, you take uh, another you know, wider scope uh, photo of it to identify which part of the body it is, fill in a few basic details that have been asked, and then it, it will automatically take that information, search it across a, a database through machine learning, and give you what the most probable diagnosis actually is for that condition. And we have been able to contribute to that database through a lot of the conditions that we've been able to diagnose internally to help them improve the quality of their machine learning algorithms. So very soon, you're going to find that you know, even machines are possibly going to diagnose skin conditions as good as humans will. Because as a machine, you can see 10,000 different images for 10,000 different conditions uh, versus what is humanly possible if a dermatologist has only seen, let's say, a thousand different cases in their lives. So uh, I think it's going to be very interesting what the role of technology is going to be. Uh, but uh, yes, we, we are able to uh, handle some skin conditions remotely. And for some others, we will physically uh, refer them uh, for our, our consultation. Um, okay, so about the patient uh, prescriptions. So when I have, um, if I think I got you right, after interacting with a doctor, then um, maybe on a phone call or a video chat, so he writes down a prescription for me, which uh, the pharmacy, which the pharmacist delivers. I didn't get that part. Well, how do I get my prescription? Or he's the one who writes it, and they just deliver straight away with the medicine. Yeah. So uh, we have an electronic medical record system that we use to capture all the data around your history, uh, your personal details, and also uh, where the doctors will insert the prescription and also where they will write out any kind of lab orders. The moment that they complete that uh, data entry part within our electronic medical record system, uh, the pharmacy gets a notification that they have an upcoming prescription to fill. And what they will do is that they will call uh, the, the patient, will confirm your location, uh, when you would like these medicines delivered to you, whether it's something you would like immediately or you'd prefer that they deliver it to you at home when you're back at maybe 5 or 6 p.m. And then we have that scheduled in our system. Uh, the driver, the rider, in this case, will be... The lab will run the tests. Those tests automatically get uploaded into our electronic medical record system. The doctors get the alert that your results are ready. They call you back. They explain your results to you and what the next course of action is. Okay, um, now in, um, in case of uh, sensitive drugs, let's say um, the benzodiazepine, which have uh, side effects of addiction, how do you actually validate that the patient calling in actually needs the medication? Because let's say I'm a patient, I could call in and then I give all this information and then I end up getting a prescription yet I'm just an addict abusing the medication. How do you actually evaluate that the patient indeed does need the medication on just um, a call-in or a chat? Very good question. So there are different classes of drugs. There are some drugs that we can... Uh, prescribe and deliver to you because they are classified as over-the-counter medicines uh, in the sense that they are relatively safe. Uh, you also have another category of medicines that are prescription-only uh, medicines. So if we get a request for such uh, prescription-only medicines, the first thing we always have to do and we always ask is whether you have a prescription. And we will ask you to either send it to us uh, by taking a photo of it and sending that to us on our eShop. There's a section where if you select a prescription-only medicine, we'll ask you to upload that prescription. 
If you say you have it at home, then at the point of delivery, uh, we'll make sure that we verify that you have that prescription before we issue you those medicines. Uh, so that's one way that we definitely do make sure that people are not abusing the service just so that they can get a hold of certain medicines. Uh, in, in any case, if we do have a consultation and it's the first time that you're using this particular set of medicines and we make sure that we are following the standards, uh, the clinical guidelines, Uganda has a set of clinical guidelines that must be followed for the treatment of different conditions. So we make sure that uh, all our kind of formularies are aligned to that. And if it is indeed you generally need the medicines, we'll have that delivered to you. The other thing about our service is that every time a service is offered, we schedule a follow-up. So we want to make sure that uh, what we are doing has actually worked for you. And if it didn't work for you, we can figure out what the next course of action is. So we, we tie in a very kind of strict approach to verifying uh, these prescriptions. Uh, also through follow-up, making sure that uh, you're not experiencing any adverse effects or events as a result of it. And also just monitoring the patterns of behavior with certain individuals. We won't let you buy certain um, items ever so frequently if we notice that they are they, that you could possibly be using them for purposes that they are, that are not intended. All right. Okay. That that makes uh, that makes it a bit clear. Now, in terms of the investigations, apart from the uh, the lab hematological investigations what about these others like the scans and the x-rays do you have mobile scans for that or for these the patients have to end up coming in yeah i was at, uh, I was at uh, the american telemedicine association conference uh, a year ago and you know one of the things that i found most fascinating is all this equipment imaging equipment that is now quite mobile and you're talking ultrasound scans you have even seen mobile x-rays uh, so right now we have uh, a mobile ultrasound scan that we can do out in the field if at all it's required. Uh, but then there are ways that we uh, could also possibly add services such as mobile x-rays. But for those right now, we'll ask you to either come into our physical facility or we'll ask you to go to uh, the location of an imaging partner so that you can get whether it's uh, you know, a, a chest x-ray or an ultrasound scan or maybe you need to do a CT or MRI. Right now, that is mainly uh, on referral. Okay, so it's soon um, going to be improved and it will be more mobile, yeah. Exactly. I think healthcare is definitely going to be more, uh, more mobile in the near future. Okay. Um, you mentioned that um, you have um, the new doctors coming on board due to the increased traffic that you're experiencing right now. But um, how exactly do you, do you um, get your doctors? Do they have to apply or do you personally handpick them because, you know, you need this to be um, something, you need these doctors to have special qualities exactly. Um, do you train them before that, how they can talk to these guys, um, how to interact with the patients on these calls? What, what's so special about the doctors um, who you take on board with you? Great. So um, first, we make, we try to make sure that we get Ugandan doctors uh, to start with. Uh, we need to make sure and have to verify that they are licensed to practice and that those licenses are, uh, have been renewed for the current, year, uh, the current uh, calendar year. And the other thing that we do is we have to make sure that each of them uh, gets professional indemnity, uh, some kind of insurance uh, as they go about their practice. The other thing that we do is that we make sure that they're thoroughly interviewed. So we have prepared over the years uh, a set of uh, interview kind of questions and scenarios that help us to gauge people's clinical expertise. Uh, but then we also, start, we also have to look out for other qualities, things like communication skills, uh, how, empathy, and all of those attributes that you know, make a teleconsultation a valuable experience for the patient. Now, of course, this is not usually part of the traditional medical training. Uh, people talk about it and emphasize it, but there haven't been deliberate efforts to work on those aspects uh, within the traditional medical training system. So what we do internally is that we have a quality assurance team that purposely 
takes these doctors through an onboarding process, an orientation process, where we uh, tell them, teach them about certain qualities that we need to see in all of our consultations. They go through coaching. Remember, all each and every uh, consultation gets recorded, and we go back and review how they're interacting with these patients, both from a customer care perspective, but then also from a clinical quality perspective. And they have uh, somebody trained in both of those areas and very senior in both of those areas to help them through that uh, transformation to becoming a telemedicine doctor. So it's not a flip of a switch. Uh, many of them do not come with the qualities that uh, we see or need. Um, but, you know, we've seen a lot of them improve over the years. And, you know, many of the doctors that we have score uh, anywhere between 85 to 100 percent from a customer satisfaction and clinical quality point of view. OK, that, that was a very uh, good answer. Um, maybe the last question for now, um, when, when uh, Kenneth asked you uh, the challenges that you've been facing, you mentioned about the need of a pharmacist um, riding with a, with a delivery man or the way to deliver the drugs to the patient. Was that right? Yes. Um, why would you need a pharmacist to come along with the delivery man? Can the delivery man just um, deliver the drugs himself? So, good question. So, we try to take the strictest approach to how we deliver care, uh, especially in the early days where people are getting accustomed to using these services. You need to instill confidence that uh, all the services end-to-end are delivered by somebody that has the medical training and licensing to be able to do so. Uh, I think it also prevents any kind of scenarios that somebody's medicines could be tampered with, especially now that people are looking to build trust and confidence in telemedicine. So we make sure our pharmacy deliveries are done by a pharmacy technician. That way we can answer any questions at the point of handover of the, of the medicines. Uh, we can make sure that we have a medical professional end-to-end -end delivering services uh, to our patients or clients. So that, that's the approach that we have taken. Same thing with the lab. You'll have a lab technician who is licensed picking up your samples and making sure that those are safely brought to the lab and that they're still viable. Um, I think also having a medical professional deliver last mile also prevents any kind of uh, tampering with your medicines or making sure that they are in the best condition possible at the time that we hand them over to the client. Okay. Um have you had to deal with um, any emergency services? And if so, how have you gone about them? Uh, things like um, snake bites and, you know, burns, poisoning? Yeah. So, so normally, I mean, if we identify that it is an emergency, our recommendation will always be to go to the nearest uh, health facility where you can get a service uh, within a hospital setting or a clinic setting for those kind of conditions. In some instances, what we do is we also coordinate your ambulance uh, service so that you make sure that you have the closest ambulance provider uh, to you alerted that you need to be delivered from home or wherever it is you are uh, to a hospital facility uh, to be able to get the care that you need. So we do not recommend that telemedicine is used for emergency conditions, to manage emergency conditions. We may choose to use telemedicine to provide fast aid I think it's a great way to uh, provide some life-saving uh, guidelines on what interventions should be done, like CPR, or to prevent you know, any further bleeding or blockage of somebody's airway and things like that. So, uh, but otherwise, we prefer that emergency conditions are managed uh, within a hospital. Okay, I think, uh, Ken, you can take over now and you can cross over to your side of the uh, security questions. Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think I, I had uh, just the one pending question, uh, the one pending question in a previous conversation, and this is uh, about uh, sort of uh, internet security and privacy in general. You know, if I'm going to put my data uh, online, how do you guarantee that I pass? First of all, that my privacy is not violated. You know, I I don't want pictures of of sort of me in a in a compromised position uh, going out yeah. into the world. But also I don't want people to be able to trace back using data points to trace back to know that it is me with this kind of current medical condition. Very good. So, yeah, definitely. So uh, one of the interesting facts is that confidentiality 
and privacy has always been an inherent value within the medical profession. So there is a foundation of those elements to start with. Now that medical services have gone digital, it creates a whole new layer of risk that must be managed. And the way that we look at it is from a framework of making sure that first of all, that you have the right policies in place as an organization, as a medical provider, uh, whether it's your information security policies or your clinical management policies or HR policies to make sure that you can guarantee that everybody is aligned uh, with what the company has set as a standard for privacy, confidentiality, and security. The next thing is to make sure that you have internal controls built into each and every process that you're delivering uh, within, your, within your, your, your medical service. So whether it's how these uh, patients interact with the service, where their data gets stored, you need to make sure you have all kinds of access controls and permissions for different users uh, and make sure that those uh, passwords or credentials are changed regularly. You need to make sure that you have uh, security around all the devices that are used within the organization, separate different networks, uh, be able to make sure you have disaster recovery policies, uh, also make sure that you have uh, internal audit uh, that you can go back to and trace uh, who is doing what within the system. And then also making sure that uh, you align with uh, international standards. So the ISO, the International Standards Organization, has different guidelines and recommendations for how organizations and companies can be able to achieve data security and privacy. Then Uganda, of course, has... Uh, uh, data Privacy and Protection Act. So making sure that you go through that checklist of, uh, of, of regulatory laws around it and making sure that you are aligned perfectly or if, it's, it, you know, sometimes it's a journey, it's a continuous effort of alignment as, as, as and when new threats present themselves or new scenarios uh, present themselves. And then, of course, you always have to make sure you deliberately train uh, each and every one of uh, your staff, because it's everybody's responsibility uh, to make sure that the services are secure. And we make we have routine trainings around security to make sure that all of us are, around, are on the same page about what it means for us to uh, be a custodian of people's private information. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, so the thing also uh, that I, I think right now, uh, some of the questions that's going around, most of the people who have tried doing startups, uh, the big assumption in their heads is uh, people at uh, medical concierge group or other people within the telehealth uh, industry are ripping big. Uh, is this uh, a right assumption to make? Are you guys, are you at the point where you're making good business right now? Or is this sort of like a fallacy? I think it's still heavily in the phase where more investment is still required to get the service out to more people. So I wouldn't say this is the time to reap, but more so this is the time to sow. This is the time to show people that telemedicine can actually work for you. And then I think if that traction gets sustained, even after the crisis, then that's when the reaping could possibly begin. So if there's anybody jumping into telemedicine right now to think that they're going to win the lottery or make a quick buck, you know, I'll totally, you know, bust their bubble and tell them that this is not the phase for that. So uh, telemedicine as an industry, as a model of delivering medical services is still in its earliest stages. And I think there is still a huge investment into trust, confidence and quality that still has to be made before we can start to uh, reap any kind of value um, from, uh, you know, as a startup from it. Hmm, I see. Uh, and so when you talk about uh, this investment, uh, do you, are you seeing now that you're getting more exposed to a different kind of investors? I know uh, health, especially in Africa, uh, is in a, a place where it can access, uh, say, funding from uh, NGOs. Unlike many other startups, it has sort of the opportunity that can access funding from NGOs or from UN organizations. But are you right now, do you feel like you're in a place where you can attract a purely business-minded or money 
uh, oriented investors at this point or is it so is, is it still the same situation as mon- many of the other uh, Ugandan and African startups where still people who want to make money don't trust Africa as a, a good market to invest yeah uh, there are so many different components to that particular question but maybe where I could start is just looking at how healthcare is financed within Uganda or within most African countries a lot of that financing comes from one government two development agencies and three would be uh, any form of insurance or contributions insurance premiums contributed either through a national health insurance scheme or through um, a voluntary health insurance uh, contributions now of course the majority of how healthcare is financed are uh, through government and development agencies so you'll f- almost find that uh, on from the private investment side uh, a lot of people one either expect government or development agencies to meet the needs of the majority of the population and sometimes think that healthcare is something that should be a social good or a social benefit and not necessarily a business the other thing about health is that it is a it's it's a unique specialty uh, unless you have domain knowledge around it it's very difficult to identify where the investment opportunity actually lies so you find that a lot of investors will shun making healthcare investments one cause they think either it's a responsibility of governments and development agencies uh, or uh, they do not have any kind of domain knowledge around healthcare to uh, be able to justify uh, a rational investment in any of the healthcare opportunities and then also the fact that uh, healthcare is very local healthcare challenges uh, in Uganda may not be the same healthcare challenges in Indonesia and as a result it's very difficult to envision how uh healthcare startups can become global businesses uh in some areas easier if you're thinking about things like devices uh hardware uh but then also that has its own challenges if you're thinking around service delivery you know it's very rare that you hear that there is a hospital that has uh, the same name and branches in you would say 5 or 10 african countries you know so you rarely hear about scenarios like that so how investors would like to think about these kind of deals is always through the lens of scale so you have to think thoroughly about uh, how you can scale your your business to attract the venture capital that it that it needs so african businesses are already starting way way behind the mark so you have to overly uh, impress in so many arenas uh, so many areas such as you know your your financials Uh, such as uh, your governance structures such as the opportunity to scale you know where the margins actually are in the quality of your management team um yeah so so that it is it is multifaceted uh have the, i think telemedicine has of course gotten more exposure now uh, that people are seeing it as uh, a means of uh, delivering more care to people that cannot physically be with, uh, be seen within a healthcare uh, healthcare facility so it, it has shown a light on it but it hasn't necessarily m- meant that uh investor scrutiny on what they have always uh, needed in a in an investable business are going to go away yeah uh, uh, thanks uh, yeah so and my last question as well will be around the technology so you mentioned earlier that uh, part of what you do is contribute data to Uh, a medical ai uh, somewhere which uh, is something that i personally find fascinating because uh, most of the big data sets uh, that uh, the sort of uh, tech world especially in africa gets access to is uh, mostly western data so we don't have i think eastern data as well at this point uh, there's a lot of data also coming in from china we don't have uh, a good we don't have very good uh, data sets here that are representative of african that of african behavior and from uh, the question here would be you know what do you do you see a uh, medical concierge group or people within this same industry contributing significantly to improving medical big data as a whole or do you still think that that is not a place that maybe the focus is at, at the moment you know uh, uh, from uh, from my experience i think there is a a huge opportunity and i mean a huge opportunity with startups or companies or organizations 
that are able to take large data sets, uh, be able to clean those data sets, uh, classify those data sets, and make them available to AI algorithms uh, that are solving problems within the African context. I think African startups that take on that responsibility, and I think every African startup has a responsibility to collect its data, clean its data, and securely make that available so that we can train all these machine learning algorithms to, to solve problems that we're experiencing on the continent. I think anything short of that, we're going to find ourselves way, way behind uh, adoption of AI that is meaningful for the African context. So I totally agree with you that we need to take extra steps forward by making sure that we can create valuable data sets uh, to be able to uh, fully take advantage of artificial intelligence. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, thanks a lot again, Davis, for being part of, uh, of the podcast. Uh, it has been a pleasure having the conversation. And yeah, we've, we've experienced some uh, technical issues. Uh, these are very expected uh, when it comes to doing things online in Uganda. We never expect, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. we don't expect a free lunch at any one time. Uh, but yes, uh, thanks again for, for being part of the podcast. I don't know if you have maybe a last word you want to push out about coronavirus or about the medical concierge group. This would be the time. Otherwise, we are ready to conclude on this. Great. Uh, you know, thank you very much for having me. Always glad to share my personal thoughts and experiences to whoever that may help or whoever may find that useful. Um, as we go through this coronavirus pandemic, it's extremely important for people to understand why they need to stay home. Every time you step outside and interact with people, you're putting yourself at risk. You're putting everybody else at risk of transmitting this virus uh, further, and we'll end up being in lockdowns longer, and we risk losing our loved ones because of it. So please stay at home. Make sure you wash your hands regularly with soap and water. Uh, or sanitize with alcohol-based uh, and approved sanitizers. And hopefully we're going to beat this thing sooner rather than later and look forward to a brave new digital world uh, as a result of it. Thank you. Thank you very much for being part of the podcast. Right. Thank You're you so much, Dave. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Kenneth. And until next time. Thank you.